Hi, everybody. My guest today is Vi Chow. Vi Chow's Vietnamese mom likes to look a certain way and often comments on Vi Chow's weight and how much they eat. But after living through a pandemic in a different state away from their mom, Vi Chow is establishing a healthier relationship with food and their body. Let's get into it. My name is Yi Chao. I am a queer uh, Southeast Asian, former refugee from Vietnam, current new American. I was seven when we resettled in the U.S. Uh, I come by way of Florida, currently calling Cincinnati, Ohio home. And in our culture, the way we would say mom and dad really depends on which region you are from. I speak with the Southern dialect, so um, I say ma and ba. Coming over as a, uh, a refugee, uh, resettling in the U.S., as uh, Drake would have said it, uh, it went from zero to 100 real quick. One way that we were able to retain our culture and heritage was absolutely through uh, recipes, a childhood comfort food in particular, certain kinds of uh, soups and stews and broken rice dishes. As my relationship to food would inevitably change, you know, in the U.S. being exposed to so many different varieties of food from other cultures. My body also shifted. It really revealed some internalized body shaming that passed from mother onto daughter for sure. One way that I noticed my mother using uh, body shaming language was at the dinner table. She would jokingly say, don't eat too much. Men don't like fat girls. Have you stepped on a scale recently? Uh, kind of in place of a greeting as I got older. She has a completely different relationship to my brother. <laughs> he can eat as much as he'd like, right? He can do whatever he likes. Initially, I was incredibly hurt by that. However, as I got older, as a coping mechanism, uh, I developed a sense of humor around it. So I would respond to the idea of a man not liking me because I'm chunky uh, with retort of, who is this imaginary man telling me what to do with my body? I wouldn't want to be with a man who couldn't handle me. Uh, I live in Cincinnati, Ohio now. There are a lot of hills. Whenever uh, my mother asked if I've stepped on a scale recently, I told her I broke the scale and actually I rolled down the hill now at full velocity. We are now about the same age as when she came to America, so uh, 29. And I can only imagine the ways that uh, her body shifted. My mother is an incredibly vain woman. After surviving seven years in a refugee camp, first thing she did was she got a nose job. That was the first thing. As I get older, I become more empathetic to what she might have gone through. Being a farm girl in rural Vietnam and how she internalized a lot of that like body shaming. 
old world sexism ideals that's been drilled into her. So I've lived in Cincinnati, Ohio for uh, the past 10 years. This was the first time that I've lived on my own in a different state. You know, like just rethinking, reimagining what it means to reclaim me for myself. How do I, a former refugee, become a sovereign nation of self? One significant way that that happened was through food, learning how to make the food of my childhood and just kind of recreating it in a way that fits my palate a little bit more, for sure. As far as diplomatic relationships between my sovereign statehood and my mother country, in, in taking my freedom, I feel like I'm America in this regard. It forced her to say, hmm, I guess that is a, an independent nation state. I guess I can recognize its sovereignty, kind of. From a thousand miles away, I'm definitely a lot braver. This pandemic in particular, really forced me to introspect in the ways that I've internalized fat shaming and my own uh, relationship to my body. I'm chunkier than I've ever been. I gained a significant amount of weight. According to me, I gained 12 pounds. My sense of reality is very warped. And I am clearly working through some of my own body dysmorphia. Six of those pounds were proudly gained during a solo trip to Vietnam back in December 2019, where I ate all the street food to my heart's content. There's something about fried chicken, you know, eaten on the street. I'm perfectly healthy. I'm healthier than the average American. You know, like I eat very whole. I uh, cook my own food. Like I rarely eat out. I... In a lot of ways, I am my own Asian mother, you know, I've always wanted. Oof. Navigating and pushing back against family and social pressures to look a certain way is akin to walking on hot coals. You see them on fire, you walk toward them, you walk over them, you think you made it across, but the burn marks remain for a long time. I really wanted, in fact, I needed to better understand the root of such pressures and how we as first gens can avoid internalizing the body shaming we may experience from our loved ones. So, you know, I called in an expert. My name is Dr. Yu Ying Song. I'm a professor at California State University, Fullerton. I'm trained as a psychologist. Uh, so I've worked at a, as a staff psychologist at a university counseling center for several years. Um, my research and work area has a lot to do with help seeking and mental wellness. So this kind of really applies to uh, disorder eating with particularly Asian American women, immigrants and families and transnational families. You listened to the Chow's story. Yes. What did you hear as you listened? Their story it made me think about a lot about my experiences working with Asian American young adults, particularly those with immigrant parents. Um, the way we express affections and love and the way that we want to experience love and affections is a little bit different. Um, I think for those folks who, are, who grow up in the U.S. versus who, those who grew up in, in Asian countries or other countries 
who have more collectivistic values. So, for example, for a lot of the Asian American families, the communication style is very much explicit communications of feedback with implicit love, right? Meaning that I want the best for you, and in order for you to be the best, I need to tell you what you need to change, right? So you can have this best life because I love you so much, right? But the because I love you so much, oftentimes is not explicitly expressed. Of course, you know I love you. So why do I need to say I love you, right? From the parents' perspective, it's implied. But from the children's perspective, the experience is that they're hearing criticism、uh, all the time. So for a lot of the Asian American young adults, it's such a disjointed experiences watching parents talking to their white friends a lot of the time. Like it's more polite. There's more explicit expressions of hugging and the words "I love you," which is kind of I think the way、um, in the media, in movies, kind of romanticize like this is a loving parent-child relationship. So a lot of time, you know, what we talked about with our Asian American young adults, particularly those with immigrant parents, is that recognize right our pain, right? We're also kind of checking. If I don't hear that, am I just making the assumption that they don't love me? They want to shame me. At the same time, thinking about why they're saying that. Being successful professionally is such a dream for their children, and part of that oftentimes comes with the idea is that you, if you present better, you're more likely to have professional possibility. You may get promoted better. You may get a better job. So we're not going to be able to unpack all of the white supremacist ideas behind that. <laughs> we'll recognize that, put that on the shelf. Right. But from the parents' perspective, that's what they believe. For the parents, oftentimes, if this is the way how they're raised, they don't quite have the tools to express their affections in other ways. So when they have a conversation with their parents, maybe even ask about why do you want me to be skinny. Right, just even asking that kind of open a door for the parents to be able to talk about their intentions. Unpacking, you know, what even thin means is really important. So one of the story that always stick out to me,、um, you know, for a lot of the Asian American young adults,、uh, they left college for the first time.、Um, if they don't have a lot of Western food in their typical family diet, like soft serve ice cream, pizza, unlimited in the cafeteria. Uh, it's fascinating, right? That you eat all of that. So by the time you go home the first time at Thanksgiving, you packed on that first year fifteen twenty pounds. Young person go home, open the door. First thing they heard is not like TV say, "Oh, I miss you, I love you so much." First thing they heard is what you got so you got fat. fat. Exactly, right? <laughs> So you heard the story too. <laughs> oh, I definitely heard it because I got the freshman fifteen. And so, as a young person, I'm like, "What happened? Like, this is the first thing you told me, right?" And then an hour later, we're at the dinner table. Like, you just told me I'm fat, so I'm not gonna eat as much, right? But then, what happens? Like, what you like? You're a college student now. You don't love the food anymore. I slave three days to cook this for you, right? Because food is love for a lot of communities, right? So then, the parents are so hurt. And the young adults love their parents so much, like they don't want to see their parents hurt, so they eat. So one of the things that Michelle talked about is as coping mechanism. That's actually some of the disorder eating happens, right? Because I want to eat, right? Because you want me to eat a lot. 
to show that I love you. So I eat a lot, but I'm so uncomfortable. And also you just call me fat. So one of the coping mechanisms we see actually is that then they will go to the bathroom and they, they learn how to throw up in college a lot of times and they throw up. Right. Mm. So it's not so much about the pathology research has talked about in terms of hating myself and some of them. Yes. But for a lot of Asian American young adults, it's a coping mechanism. So let's um, define a little bit what disordered eating means and how someone might be able to recognize that in themselves. Yes. So disordered eating, meaning that when we're engaging behaviors or having thoughts and beliefs about what we should eat, how much we should eat, what I should look like, um, that's not the most functional. Disorder eating capture a much wider range than eating disorder. Because eating disorder is a clinical term, right? So you need to have certain symptoms for a certain amount of time. So disorder eating for me is a much better way to kind of capture that dysfunctional ways of thinking about food. For example, I must control how I eat, right? So I can be happy. Or um, I'm so afraid of being uh, fat. So it could be thrown up, could be over-exercising. So all of that fall under the spectrum. How do we get help? Ah, how do we get help? Fantastic. So how do we get help for disorder eating? One is that that literacy of recognizing uh, the symptoms and the beliefs and the behaviors, right? So one of the misconceptions about people with disorder eating or eating disorder is that they don't love, they don't like food. Actually, on the contrary, a lot of the folks really like food, but the how to have a good relationship with food is kind of what's problematic, right? So how do we get help is if we recognize that we're having an ambivalent relationship about food, then we want to kind of reflect on that, right? How much, what kind of behaviors am I doing? But if I wake up thinking about how much I weigh today, if every bite that I take, I think about how it's going to affect my calorie, right? Then I'm spending, I'm giving a lot more energy than it really deserves then that's the time I would say definitely will be a good time to kind of talk to a mental health professional. It doesn't mean that you have a disorder, but it does mean that it's occupying your time and energy, right? Thinking about this a lot. So one of the issues we do know, though, the misconception that Asian American adults are just smaller. So even with Asian American, not just young adults, Asian American folks uh, have disorder eating or even eating disorder, a lot of the mental health professional actually doesn't really assess that because if you're small, well, you're just naturally small. So this is actually a great time to talk about a little bit of the cultural pressure that Chow experiences. Um, and they talk about how growing up back home in Vietnam, there was a lot of pressure on women to look a certain way so that they could be appealing for potential husbands. Their mom, they say someone who is very, very invested in her appearance. And even when they live a thousand miles away, there is still pressure to maintain the appearance that they are, in fact, still trying to maintain the cultural standard. What's up with that? And how do we break that? Yeah, I love it. What's up with that? That's what I want to say all the time. What's up with that? We talked about the white supremacist and sexist idea right, about what a body should look like and how does one have social mobility. So and I was really happy to hear um, Chow talked about uh, they recognizing the sexism in that, that for female expressing folks, 
if you're not fitting into what's considered to be quote unquote attractive, right? With the parentheses, you know, sexist white supremacist standards. And, you know, one part of my work really now is focusing on recognizing all these isms and oppression, right? But also kind of recognizing how we have internalized them. Because exactly like you said, Vicho has lived now a thousand miles, so thousands of miles away from Vietnam, right? And also many, many miles away from their parents. At the same time, we can't help but internalize the values that we're taught or we experience, we're exposed to growing up, right? Um, but what we do hear from, from them is that they're recognizing some of that, right? That they are paying attention to how they're eating, that connecting to how they were taught when they were younger. At the same time, I'm also hearing them talking about how the, how do they reframe that, reinterpret, right? Um, these values and expectations serve a purpose in the society that are still upholding these values. A lot of the collectivism culture, you know, meaning that I love you. That's why I give you feedback. I want you to be successful. A lot of these traditional Asian cultures, traditional collectivist culture, are one of the reasons that the community really hold down together through all kinds of trauma. A lot of these uh, communities escape from wars, right? Escape from poverty, especially for refugee folks to be able to survive and be successful. So these are the values that were very helpful to hold the community together, to help each other out, right? And to be able to look at trauma and say, that happened, but I'm going to hold it together, not pay attention to the feelings and we're going to move forward. Right. So we can keep going. So during trauma, that's how we survive. Right. But for the children now, the approach of not recognizing feelings, not recognizing trauma doesn't quite fit for them. For folks like Vichow, being able to kind of recognize the context of the cultural expectations can be very helpful because what it does is that it lifted that blaming of the parents out of the pain, right? It's not because my parents did not like the way I look. It is because this is the way that they know how to ex express love. They don't have the best tools or languages to do that. So understanding the context of the trauma, right? It's helpful, I think, to heal from the pain and the, these cultural or family uh, expectations. Wonderful. Oh, thank you so, so, so much for being here today. Uh, it's my pleasure. I, I love talking about this. So thank you for the opportunity for me to talk about it. All right, let's recap what we learned from Yu Ying. Recognize communication styles. If explicit words of love and affection are not common in your family, look for other ways your loved ones are showing how much they care about you. Consider behavior around food. If you or a loved one is spending a lot of time and energy thinking about and planning how you act when it comes to food, consider having a conversation about disordered eating or getting help. And remember, Factor in trauma, values and behaviors that are passed from one generation to the next may have been helpful to a family's survival in extreme situations like war, poverty, and forced migration. 
Knowing this context can help us understand our parents, help us heal, and stop blaming. Thank you for listening and thank you so, so much for sharing us. How to Talk to Mommy and Papi About Anything is an original production of LWC Studios. Virginia Lora is the show's producer. Kojin Tashiro is our mixer. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor. I'm the creator, Juleika Lantigua. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Talk to Mommy Papi. Please follow us and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Bye, everybody. Same place next week.